All eyes this week on Nashville, all eyes on the NHL draft. Welcome to 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the GMC Canyon AT4X. Lonely Jeff here in Stouffville. Well, Elliot and Amel are getting down in Nashville, home of this year's edition of the NHL draft. Coming up a little bit later on during this podcast, you will hear the roundtable we recorded last week, preview style. For the NHL draft with Sam Cosentino and Jason Bukala. Draft Wednesday on Sportsnet, 7 o'clock Eastern. Also watching on Sportsnet now. Elliot, before we get to our roundtable with these two gentlemen, before we get to trades and rumors, because that's been the call of the weekend, let's talk a little bit about the NHL awards. Not the awards necessarily themselves, but what exactly you're doing, and maybe more importantly, who you're doing them with. I don't know what I'm really allowed to say, but we had a <laughs> rehearsal uh, Sunday night. This is going to be so good. I'm doing, well, don't tell anything that might not be true. I'm doing some stuff with uh, Liam McHugh and Paul Bissonette. So we'll see how it all turns out. And okay. put it this way. I think we all know who the star of this is going to be, and it's not me. And someone may get dragged into doing something he otherwise may not have wanted to do. So tune into the NHL Awards for that. Monday night. Monday night, yes. Trades and rumors. This has been a wild weekend. Yeah, Uh, You've always made the point that it's around this time where everyone, oh, lies is such a strong word. Let's just say deliberately deceives everybody. Um, But it's been a big weekend of rumors and trades. Uh, I want to get to Colorado Nashville here in a couple of seconds. But what's the very latest with the Philadelphia Flyers and the St. Louis Blues and names like Kevin Hayes, Travis Sanheim, and Tori Krug? Look, Kevin Hayes, I think, is going to get traded to St. Louis. However this goes, uh, Hayes, I believe, is going to be a blue. The question is, what's going with him and around him? And Travis Sanheim, you know, Philly tried to keep his name pretty quiet, and for a while they did, but his name got out there. He has a clause, protection, that clicks in July 1st. And, you know, I I think there were some teams that kind of kicked tires on him, but then I think St. Louis got really interested. And one of the things I think that St. Louis liked was the idea of pairing him with Colton Pareko that he would be a a good partner for him. Hmm. And this kind of broke on Saturday. I don't know if it was when exactly it was, but about 24 to 48 hours before it broke, I think Tory Krug was asked how he would feel about going to Philadelphia. Now, Tory Krug is a no-trade clause, so he has say. Mm-hmm. And he's also on vacation, I believe. So that added another layer to it. But obviously, it got out, and Philadelphia was hoping to convince him. Like, I know there were some reports that Philly was going to flip him. I don't think that's true initially. Now, I think it may have entered the picture, but initially, I think it was Philly's goal to keep him, that they would need a defenseman who could run their power play. Like Krug is a pretty respected, hard playing guy. You want yeah. like he was a long shot to make it, had an extremely successful career. And I think Philly liked the idea of having that around their young players as they were rebuilding. So I believe initially their goal was to keep him. And obviously it got out, and the reports were it was going to be Hayes and Sanheim 
for Krug in a first. I think there was possibly more to this, but that's kind of some of the major stuff. And I just don't think that Tory Krug was ready to say yes. Now, as we tape this on Sunday night, I've heard everything from it's a hard no to right now it's a no. And as of Sunday night, I don't think anything had been presented to Krug that was going to get him to change his mind. He was still in the same place. Now, I think they've worked at him. You know, John LeClaire was hired by the Flyers. John LeClaire's agent, when he played, was Louis Gross, who is Krug's agent. So I think they've tried it that way. I think there are some Flyer players who've tried to talk him into it. The one guy I suspect, because he's a really uh, respected and popular guy, would be Cam Atkinson. I don't know that for sure, but I would believe that Atkinson would be a guy who would be dispatched to see if they could make this work. You know, first of all, the most important thing to say, Jeff, is that this is Tory Crews' contractual right. He was given this contract. Thank you. I know that if I was in his shoes and I didn't want to go somewhere, I would say, look, I signed this contract in good faith, and I am using this in good faith. So that's number one. I think that's the thing you have to remember. Now, I haven't spoken to Krug. His agent's keeping a very low profile. What I think has gone on here is there's a couple of things. It's been reported and put out there that they had a child recently. I think they have three kids, and I'm not sure he wants to move them around very much. And the other thing is, if he is traded to Philly and stays there, you know, now the way it goes, you keep your claws, it travels with you. Mm-hmm. But how do you know that you aren't going to be asked to move it again in the future? And I don't think with a young family, he wants to move around very much. I think the other thing too is he played on a team like Boston. He went to St. Louis. They were hoping to win. I don't know if he wants to go to a team that's in a rebuild. He's This is probably the last contract he's ever going to sign. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a question too. Now, I believe one of the things that was brought up to him was, you know, St. Louis, do you really think you're going to win there? Now, that's not going to make people in St. Louis very happy, but I think someone told me that was kind of brought up to him. Like as of Sunday night when we taped this and it's 925 Easterners we're talking here, Jeff, mm-hmm. I'm under the impression that nothing's been presented to him that's going to make him change his mind. That may not be the case eventually. Like, I got to tell you this, like David Posternock retweeted, like this person said, bring Krug back to Boston and Posternock retweeted it. If it was Boston, I think he would wave, but I don't know if that's serious. Mm-hmm. So... I think what's going to happen is unless all of this arm twisting works, they're going to have to present him an option he likes. And whenever I talk about this, Jeff, I think of Kelly Rudy, who always has said, if you sign this clause in good faith, you shouldn't even be asked. I'm warmer to Kelly. I always have been. Because sometimes these clauses are given in exchange for less salary. Not always. But generally, I've always felt that if you ask a player to waive his no trade or no move after having negotiated it in good faith, 
that's akin to saying, give me something in exchange for nothing. And I know the CBA doesn't allow you to get anything else. I know it's an idea that's been brought up before. Well, you know, for players that agree to waive their no trade, could there be a one-time, I don't know, half million dollar payment for agreeing to waive a no trade? Yeah, no. That's not currently in the CBA, so you can't do that. I know it's been coffee shopped before uh, in conversations, but I completely understand where Kelly is coming from. Maybe they could give him free internet for life, Comcast. <laughs> Perhaps, but maybe somewhere down the road. Krug is all also scrubbed like the blues from his me social media. So that's leading people to think that he might do something here. Again, mm -hmm. as we record this, I was told there was nothing that had changed. People are sure trying. Right. But as we record this, nothing had changed. The other story involving the Philadelphia Flyers, and this trade may take weeks to get done or it may not even happen. Tony D'Angelo to the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, there are some snags complicating this one, but these two parties... And you think you know what this is, right? I suspect that the issue is the reacquire with retention issue. If you reacquire a player and the team trading him to you is holding money, you have to wait until one year after the initial trade was made. In this case, it would be July the 8th when the original Carolina Hurricanes Philadelphia Flyers trade was made. That's a good pickup. I don't think the league is going to waive this one. Or, you know, the, despite maybe if, if Philadelphia is going to appeal this and say, hey, can you look the other way on it? I yeah, don't looking the, the other NHL's, way is not yeah. going to happen. <laughs> I don't think so. So I think that might be the snag here. So I don't know that this thing gets done at all. But if it is going to get done, it's not going to get done soon. It sounds like we'll be waiting into July for this thing to happen. Mm. If the Philadelphia Flyers are going to retain salary on this one. Again, someone had indicated to me that it was going to happen. It was just going to happen eventually. So maybe that's where we are here. We'll see. Philly's out there. And, you know, whether or not Sanheim goes in this St. Louis deal, you know, the tough thing now is that you know your team wanted to move you, right? Yeah. So, you know, some people can put that behind them. Some people can't. We'll see how everybody reacts here. But the one thing I'm learning right now, Jeff, is that, the reason there's a lot of trade talk is people aren't crazy about the free agency group as a whole. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be an active week because teams see trades as a better way to fill their rosters rather than free agency. That's why I think there's going to be a lot of action. Speaking of Carolina a second ago, there was uh, other action involving the Carolina Hurricanes, most notably with Jordan Stahl, Elliott, and his contract extension. I, I don't think there's anybody who's surprised about this. I think we all believed it was going to get done. Maybe it was a little rockier than everyone expected, but I don't think anyone ever believed that Jordan Stahl was going to hit the market. I, I wonder if a team like the Kraken had gone after him, but you know, then he would have had to go across the country. I just think, though, that it was going to be Carolina at the end of the day. I'm expecting, I suspect you are as well, something to be announced on July 1st with Sebastian Ajo, the, uh, the, the long-rumored extension. Agree, disagree? I would agree with that. I mean, I think it's going to get done eventually, too. So 
I don't know if I would say July 1st. I'll defer to you on that, but I think we all believe it's going to happen. The other thing, it sounds like Carolina has moved on. Again, there's still time, so this could rekindle, but as of right now, it sounds like they've moved on from Max Pacioretty. We'll see where that situation ends up. Um, Los Angeles Kings, Elliot, Pierre-Luc Dubois. Listen, I think you were the first to mention Los Angeles as having significant interest in Pierre-Luc Dubois. And as the uh, the days go on here, it looks like that interest is intensifying. What do you hear? What do you know? I had heard a rumor that they had permission to talk to him. That was flat out denied to me. But I had heard a rumor that they had permission to talk to him. But like I said... I was told no. I believe that everybody, like the Jets, the Kings, his representatives, they were like coming into Nashville on Sunday. We'll see where this goes. But there's definitely traction. There's definitely movement. I think one of the most interesting things here is going to see if Dubois signs an eight-year deal or he signs a one-year deal to get L.A. through this season of cap gymnastics and then extends. Sort of like Kotkaniemi did or Mikey Anderson did for the Kings last year. I'm wondering about that. I don't know if he's going to sign the big deal right away. I would wonder, before Colorado traded for Ryan Johansson, I wonder if Colorado took a run at this. I don't think it was ever close. Hmm. I'm not convinced that at the end of the day it was going to work, but I have a sneaking suspicion that Colorado took a run at it. But I think at the end of the day... The places that Dubois was willing to go, there just weren't a lot of options that really worked. And L.A. has been aggressive, like we talked about. And I think some people would be surprised if it doesn't happen. But nothing is done until it's done. For the Kings, what are we looking at here? I think we're all trying to figure that out. I I think a lot of people wonder about Velarde. A lot of people wonder about one of Ayafalo and Arvidsson to make it work. You know, Sean Dursey, they traded. You know, one thing about Dursey, someone was mentioning to me, is that he's got one more year under contract. He's going to have a big arb case because he puts up numbers, right? Oh, yeah. I think the Kings knew that. They knew that they just would not be able to fit him in long-term because of his arb case. How do you get paid in hockey? You score. You get points. And that was a good deal for Arizona, And I think the Kings knew that the Arb case was one of the reasons they weren't going to be able to keep Dursey. We'll see where this goes here. But like like I said, I I think this is working towards something. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the Kings and the Jets, there's a lot of questions about Byfield. Like These predictions can always end up exploding all over your face. But I don't think Byfield's in this. I mean, I, I know there's been a lot of rumors about Byfield. I don't think so. One thing, by the way, that I do worry about, about Quentin Byfield with the Los Angeles Kings. What's that, Jeff? If they make the move for Pierre-Luc Dubois, you have Kopitar, you have Deneau, then you have Pierre-Luc Dubois, and then what happens to Quentin Byfield? And I I get that he can play the wing, but he's the center. You know what? You say it yourself, skill adapts. Skill adapts. That would be the only one thing that I would be concerned about, though. 
Fair enough. We'll see where this one ends up. Uh, as we mentioned, this is a busy week uh, coming up in Nashville. Uh, a couple of more things we're going to give way to the uh, the draft preview roundtable. Uh, you already referenced this earlier. Nashville and Colorado getting together to do a deal. Ryan Johansson moves from the Predators uh, to the Avalanche. Alex Galchenyuk goes the other way. And Nashville retains 50% of the contract to make this one happen. Preds, by the way, now have a lot of cap space. Yeah, 20, 20 million. We'll, we'll get there in a second. I have a couple of theories about that, and we'll see what happens this week. Uh, your thoughts on the deal. Ryan Johansson, they find their second-line center. Well, this goes to what we were talking about, Jeff, is that I think the teams like the trade market more than they like the free agent market. Yeah. You know, basically, if you were signing Ryan Johansson to two years at $4 million per, would you take that gamble? And I think a lot of teams would. So, and don't forget, there's a lot of connections there. Chris McFarland, the GM, was in Columbus when Johansson got drafted. Jared Bednar, the coach, was in Columbus as an assistant coach when Johansson was there early. He's a big body. Colorado likes big bodies. You know what's interesting to me are the analytics there, Jeff, because I saw some analytics that absolutely trashed him. Mm -hmm. And I think his shooting percentage this year was like the worst of his career. So Colorado is a team that looks at that stuff. But the bottom line is he's a big body who can play behind McKinnon. Uh, we're all curious to see what happens with JT Comfer here. Yes. This is one of those things where I kick myself, Jeff, and say, I should have seen something like this coming. I think that Nashville was considering buying Johansson out. Hmm. So like the, the, the fact that they are going to pay him 50% for two years, I think Nashville was is okay with that. I think they saw it as just uh, like sometimes people need a fresh start, a break, a divorce, move on, get back on Tinder and start swiping right. Uh, <laughs> I think Nashville was in that position and it, it worked out, I think, for everybody involved here. You know, I had a conversation with someone last night from another team and we were talking about this trade and I said, you know, because I, I, I think a lot of us wonder about um, the pace that Colorado plays at and can Ryan Johansson complement that pace? Can he keep up with that pace? The person that I talked to brought up a really good point. It's further to your point as well. It's like, well, no, he's not Nathan McKinnon. He's not going to play at that pace. He's not Miko Rantanen. He's not playing at that pace. But he said he's a really smart player with great hands. And smart players with great hands. Like, look, Mark Stone doesn't play with incredible pace, but he's one of the most effective players on the Stanley Cup champions. Um, and he said, listen, uh, it's the obvious conversation because of just how high a tempo Colorado plays at. But he said, look, he gets around the ice fine. He's a big body and his hands are ridiculous. He'll be fine in Colorado. I would tend to agree with that. One final note here, and we'll uh, we'll give way to the round table. Um, the Alex DeBrinket situation with the Ottawa Senators and trying to find him a new home. I have a hard time believing that at the end of all of this, it's not going to be Detroit. I'll tell you this. I think I said at the beginning when we first we first talked about it that I was going with Detroit until I was proven wrong. So I stick with my predictions no matter how bad they are until I'm proven wrong. I think there's a couple of things here. Number one, I've heard that Steve Eiserman is not crazy about term. Now, he did it for Larkin. It's a center. He was an original Red Wing draft pick that might be a little bit different, but some people have told me that Iserman is not crazy about term. So that's the number one thing here too. And 
The other thing is I was talking to somebody about the way Iserman does deals. He'll grind you and he'll grind you and he'll grind you and he's a grinder. But he gets to a point where he just says, stop, that's it. No matter what you do to me, I'm not going any farther. So when I was listening to that, I was saying, is that going to be a match? You know, is that going to be enough for Ottawa? Is that going to be a deal what, that Ottawa wants to do? Like another manager told me, you get to that point with Iserman where he just says, you know what, I've had enough. You're either doing the deal or you're not. That puts you in a position where you have to decide. And so, you know, we'll see what happens here. Speaking of Iserman and his style, I was having a conversation this morning with an agent and we were talking about Iserman and uh a couple of his a uh, couple of his players and he kind of laughed and he said you know Iserman's a pretty interesting guy he'll never tell you whether he likes your prospect or not and he said I asked him about it once and Iserman said why would I tell you if I like this player or not other teams will find out and I don't want anyone to think that I like some player only to watch them jump in front of me to grab them so I'm not going to tell you if I like your player or not I'm not surprised about that in the least. <laughs> Nor am I that I ever bobblehead that conversation. Other things to keep an eye out, Jeff. Aiden Hill. Yeah, good note. I think there's an extension coming in uh, in Vegas, two times 4.9-ish. You know what? He gets paid and Vegas saves on term. I, I, I see that one as a win-win. I just think the next two days, two or three days, are going to be... You know, really crazy. All the teams get in. They really like the trade market. The one I'm watching, Toronto's got a lot of big decisions to make. Mm-hmm. Like we've mentioned it a couple times. It's like tree living's like drinking from a fire hose. He's got so much to do. Well, now it's decision time. And I'm really curious to see where this is all going to go. If they don't have an indication that Nylander's going to sign July 1st, I'm really curious to see what they're going to do here. Hmm. Like, are they really going to go into a position where both Matthews and Nylander aren't signed by July 1st? Even though I think that Matthews, and I've said this a million times, I think he's going to sign for like four or five years. So that's one I'm watching is Toronto, because Toronto has to make some decisions here. I'm not hearing a ton about Hellebuck. I think it's been a little bit, yeah, but there's just a lot of goalies out there, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of goalies out there. It's going to be a wild few days. No question about it. It will. Uh, And it culminates in Nashville at the draft, our draft round table coming up after the break with Sam Cosentino and Jason Bukala. Keep it here. Hey, Steve from Northern Colorado, Colorado Eagles country. Listening to the Bill Foley interview again. And it's one thing I've never quite understood about the big four North American sports is that when they talk expansion and talk about adding teams and everybody can see the Premier League model, it only has 20 teams at the top. And when they expand, they expand the pyramid, not just the tip. And hockey, way more than basketball, way more than football. Baseball is a different argument, but hockey has that potential for a network with relegation, where you would not add more teams to the NHL family. You would add more to the base that supports 
moving up and moving down. I just wonder why North American businessmen are not like smart or savvy enough to see the big distinction between the world's most successful sports entity and, and their own. Stop worrying about 33, 34, 35 teams. Listen to the 32 Thoughts podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Merrick Friedman, Delich, alongside Jason Bukla, Sam Cosentino, Elliot is the yearly NHL 32 Thoughts draft preview. And on the last podcast, we talked about trade activity around the draft, how frisky is it, what the GMs are doing. But for the purposes of this show, we're going to drill down on the kids and drill down on the prospects, the stars of the show. So we'll throw this one out on the table and whoever bites, bites on this one. But is there a draft that you guys have either been part of or seen or thought about that this one compares to in terms of quality. I know it's hard because we're projecting out and I get that, but does this draft remind you of any other drafts or is it a standalone? You know what? I, I've really been looking forward to this draft class. No question. It's a high end group. I find that the talent at the top is exceptionally elite and you can go back even in most recent years, and you can see some of the, you know, the guys that are even on the wire sort of right now that are talking that were high-end picks that are being floated out there to maybe be moving from one team to another, and that generally doesn't happen coming out of high-end drafts, right? This draft here, I love the depth of it. I love the high-end talent of it, but full disclosure, I find myself every year splitting hairs with the draft classes, and I I really enjoy the kids every year. So I don't Mm. really... I don't project it to be that much different year over year, but the high end guy, like when you get a a generational talent and then you get the guy at two and the guy at three and, you know, it starts to remind me back when we drafted Barkoff in New Jersey back in the day when you had like McKinnon and Barkoff and, you know, that group was supposed to be exceptional. The draft was in New Jersey, not the New Jersey. People are going to be looking at their a phone or their radio in their car and <laughs> say Barkov was drafted by New Jersey. The you mean in, in New, New Jersey, Jersey yeah. yes. The marathon draft in New Jersey, as we recall. Remember coming out of, that was a lockout year, was it? Or a strike? Remember, it was a one-day draft in New Jersey. Yeah. yeah. Guys had to grind it out. So I love the high-end talent, Sammy, but I'm not going to suggest that the depth isn't as good as uh, other years. It's unique for me for a couple of reasons. First of all, you have the generational thing with Bedard. Next, you have a lot of really high-end forwards who are a little bit on the smaller side so you're talking about six foot or under and you're talking about you know 165 pounds to 185 pounds now of course there's room for growth in those players but typically when you talk about a draft class being so high end you're getting it's bigger guys the other element for me that makes it unique is that you're probably looking at 3d that are going to go in the top half then there's a gap after that and then it'll be a bit of a free-for-all for defensemen is it going to be you know, the Simashevs and the Bonks and those those types of guys. So there's a lot of different elements to it. And I guess the last one I'd say that makes this unique is, even going back to last year, especially in the first round, the breadth of where the talent's coming from. Really good Russian players, players from Czechia. Slovaks are really good again. Canada, the U.S., Sweden had a great emergence, especially with what they did at the uh, under-18s and, and losing in the final and overtime to the U.S. So you're seeing broadband breadth of talent, which I think is really cool. So in terms of the talent itself, I mean, it's so hard to project, but based on what we've seen and 
you know, and the people that we're talking to, everyone wants to compare this favorably to some of the best draft classes we ever have. It's so difficult to make that decision. For me, a lot of people are making it at five years out. For me, I think the real definition as to how high-end it is is when you get to three years out. How many guys have played how many games? How many guys have had an impact, especially high in a lineup, top six, top four? And then you can make that determination. So guys are a lot more prepared now. They get there quicker. They're more prepared when they arrive. And so that three-year window that used to be five for me is back to three to make that determination. How many of these players that we're talking about here can walk into the NHL next season? Do you think Bedard can? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was I so. that was. I, I was not so. expecting you to answer that seriously. Oh, <laughs> breaking all the hearts in Regina, just like that. Oh, Pat's fans, sorry. Carlson could do it. Fantilli could do it. If you're looking at Will Smith, I don't think he's ready. I don't think Ryanbacker's ready. Benson, Leonard, you'd have to go down the list. Leonard would be right on the edge for me. Leonard's going to get games. He'll get games this year. Jason's nodding. You think Leonard? Yeah, Leonard's one of my favorites. He's a bulldog, right? So it's more than just skill with him. We're talking about a 200-foot game and interior compete that I feel that no matter what level that kid plays next year, whether it be college or if he was a major junior guy, whatever, he's going to thrive. He's just one of those guys that's going to find a way earlier than later. So his floor, if you will, we already know what the ceiling could be, like we project the ceiling, but his floor, his entry-level floor, is already ready to go. Like, he could do it, in my estimation. Elliot and I were talking about this on uh, on, the, on the podcast, that there's a Kachuk factor, considering what Kachuk did all season long and into the playoffs. Every manager is out there screaming, find me a Kachuk, find me a Kachuk, find me a Kachuk. In this year's draft, it's Leonard. That's the guy, right? And because of that, do you wonder if he goes even higher than maybe projected? Listen, you guys know this. Everybody skates. Everybody shoots. Like, skill is elite all around. What else can you give me? And Leonard gives you what a lot of other kids can't. Is that fair to say? He gives you some of that it factor. When it comes to that element, and I heard you guys talking about it, you know, like a Bertuzzi type of guy where you're talking about Kachuk Light. I was just listening to you clowns on the way in here. So, and I, and we're going to go and find that guy. So he, he is probably the closest to that in that he can skate. He's got really good skill, 50 goals type of guy. He can move pucks. He can get in in the four check. And he's got like that cockiness, arrogance, confidence, you know, that he's in that tri-state area. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's cocky. Sometimes it's arrogance. And sometimes it's just self-confidence. I think he sits in that tri-state zone. But I got to say, like for Leonard, I've loved him since we went to Plymouth in, in November. I'm like, I love this guy. I've had him high up on my list all year. I think talked six or seven. And I, I believe that he's going to have that type of impact. He can have it early on. So many factors go into that. Where you want to slot your guys, what you project for the future in terms of your salary cap and all those other things. I think all those things play a piece. But I think he could play next year. I think he'll get games. The one thing I'll double down on there is he's not the type of player you have to insulate as much as some other guys earlier in their career because of the way he plays. Like Smith, if he plays next year, you have to insulate him because he's a he's a motion guy. He's always in motion. You know, he's 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 not a stop and go guy and he's always got the puck. He wants the puck on his stick. But he needs guys around him to do some of the other lifting. Where Leonard, you don't have to insulate him. Like, he can play a variety of roles, you know. So that's why I say the floor is higher for him. Yeah. The ceiling could end up being higher for Smith. But full disclosure, like, I've got Leonard ahead of uh, Smith on my draft list, right? And part of the reason is because I want to win games in April and May. 
most people I've talked to seem to think, and I'll get to Mishkov in a second, but they seem to think that it will be some combination of Bedard. I'm doing it in alphabetical order. You Bedard, sure about him? Yeah, I'm sure about him. Bedard, Carlson, Fantilli, Smith in the top four, and the draft really starts at five. Do you guys agree with that? I agree totally. Montreal's a bit of a wild card there. But do you think those four guys will go one, two, yes. three, four yeah, in I some do. order? I think about Mike Greer, right? He's got Boston connections too. Will Smith's a Boston area right. guy. You know, there's nothing really that you don't like about the player. I know you've had, you know, in your deep dive, uh, JB, you've had some some concerns. But those, I think, are concerns that can be eradicated once you get to the pro level. Mm -hmm. But it's going to take a little bit of developmental time for that to happen. But I think connections run strong. Like yes. You know, you're talking you're the background. Millions. Yeah. yeah you're you, betting millions. You really got to do, it's not just, hey, what a great hockey player anymore. There's way more that goes into it than that. You know, what was he like at the program? They're living with uh, Will Vote and Ryan Leonard in the same house. And Smith's mom's coming in to cook sometimes. And Vote's mom's coming in to cook sometimes. And, you know, none of the moms that they live with are going to throw the kid under the bus. So now you got to do a deeper dive. What's the equipment manager saying over at the U.S. Under-18 program? What are they saying back? And he's a hard know, guy to get a hold of. They insulate that equipment guy oh, at, the, yeah. at the program. Oh, he's, they do. Yeah, so yeah, you guys are revealing your tricks. You're telling us the equipment guys are all your great well, sources. I, if, <laughs> if, if you want the real goods, you go to the equipment guy, the trainer. Absolutely. Oh, I, I used to be one, so I, I <laughs> right, know. of course. Yeah, I know about absolutely. it. And if you, you know, just on a sidebar, if you talk to Alex Anthopoulos, in his time with the Blue Jays, he would do a lot of work. He'd go talk to the visiting clubhouse guy, talk to the home clubhouse guy, you know, the trainers, how are people being treated, you know. Are you A-Rod when there's a laundry basket right there and you drop your dirty clothes right beside it, or are you someone different than that? So I think uh, that work's important. You know, it's funny you uh, mentioned that to me because I was talking to someone yesterday and they said there was a player who dropped in the draft a couple of years ago because they were a leader on their junior team and there were a bunch of people at a game. There was a scrum in the corner and his teammate got knocked down and the guy skated right by it. There was a lot of people watching and those kinds of little things, like I'm like you, I like, I'm a slobby person, but generally I prefer to clean up after myself when I'm in a work environment or something like that. I find those stories very interesting. Ask the scout. So, Ask the scout when he goes to watch that stuff. There's a prospect in this draft projected to go in the first round. And I was at two games this year in relatively empty arenas. At least where I was standing, it wasn't flush with a, a crowd. So two different occasions, not the first time. You go back the second time, as you know, Jeff, you know, you know, you don't want to see a guy one time on a weekend go back. And I heard him bark out some horrible things to his teammates. He comes into our draft uh, combine meeting and um, gloats about his leadership and team guy and all this other stuff. Of course, I don't propose the question because uh, the form isn't, you know, it's not proper. But I know what I heard. I know what I saw. And I, I think that's a wise message for people to listen, that scouts watch everything. The kid slamming his stick on the bench, the kid oh, yeah. uh, giving it to the coach, the kid yelling at his teammates, you know, get bumped and what, down the hallway. And what Freeze just said, I mean, your guy's getting accosted and you're going to skate right by it. Like, come on. Well, let me ask you this. If you're doing your NHL interviews, you're going right after that. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm putting him on the spot yeah. for why, uh, what I heard. Not, not once. Not in the media twice. stuff that we're doing. No. It's a little I don't want to kill the kid for sure. Okay. We have, we've gone, I don't know, 15 minutes. We haven't mentioned Mishkov yet. Merrick threw out a scenario on the pod yes. last week. He said that, so, okay, you should explain it. Why am I talking so, okay, for you? Okay, so I, I got a note Tuesday morning from someone saying, I hated your take on Anaheim. 
And I said, why'd you hate my take on Anaheim? And he said, who's the general manager of the Anaheim Ducks? I said, Pat Verbeek. He said, where did Pat Verbeek come from? I said, the Detroit Red Wings. He said, who's the GM of the Detroit Red Wings? He said, Steve Eiserman. He said, he's been there with the guy that doesn't listen to anybody else. He makes up his mind. He doesn't get on the train tracks of what anyone else thinks or common wisdom or consensus feels that. And he makes his pick. And he said, it wouldn't surprise any of us if Pat Verbeek took Mitch Coffin too. Would that surprise either of you guys? Yeah, it would surprise me. Um, and I'm not – the premise I think is bang on to be honest with you. I think that that's exactly how Pat's going to run that franchise. He definitely wants to put his personality stamp on that group. I don't disagree with that. But I also – where I'm torn with it is there's some unknowns and uh, Fantilli is a known. That's who I have it too. Uh, and by the way, Elliot, I think the draft starts at 2 not five, because mm. the draft list will get, depending on who goes, two, three, four. Like, trust me, there's going to be a lot of momentum there. So I would be surprised, but mm -hmm. I see the reason why you're thinking that way and suggesting it because I absolutely believe that Pat Verbeek, the little ball of hate, is going to put uh, his own stamp. He's going to think it, he's going to think outside the box. Let's just say that. Like, he's not just going to go with the flow. So I see it. I don't see it happening, but I see the, the reasoning behind it. Let's not overthink it. Stop it. With that kind of talk, it would be my opinion. Mm -hmm. There are too many question marks. Yeah, you marks. tell them. You tell them, <laughs> Sam. There's too many question marks. And yeah. What I are your major it. questions about Michikov? You know, you want to put your stamp. Well, there's a lot of questions. A, are you really happy with the player when he doesn't have the puck? What he does defensively? Are you happy and convinced that he's a really good teammate? Um, there's been a lot of question marks about that. You have to be more than concerned with the contract. The contract to me is the least of the worries. We've seen contracts be bought out and stopped earlier than they should have. That's the easiest part to figure it out. The next element is, as a young man who just lost his father. Yeah, very. I think that can't be forgotten. You can't, you can't forget it. And, and I hate dramatic. talking about it. Mm -hmm. And I feel really bad for the kid because this mm -hmm. is supposed to be the best year of your life mm -hmm. where you're in your draft year showing off your stuff. You're going ahead to get it against Bedard, all these tournaments. And none of that really happened for him. So I, I really feel for the young man. Mm -hmm. But now you're in a situation where you're at home, you have a good contract, you still have, and, and forgive me, I don't know his sibling situation, but his mother's in the fold. You've lost your father, who he was very close with from everything that I can understand, and you're going to leave that situation. I would have a hard time thinking that that's going to be a possibility within the next couple of years. So getting back to trying to answer all those questions and trying to be the smartest guy in the room and try and put your stamp on the organization when you have an Adam Fantilli or a Leo Carlson waiting right there, size down the middle of the ice, dynamic ability, especially when it comes to Fantilli, success right in front of your own eyes at the University of Michigan as a freshman, third guy to win the Hobie Baker Award, you have to ask yourself the question, are you really losing that much from a player perspective to not have to be concerned about all of the other elements that come along with drafting Matt Vimichkov? Okay, so keeping all of that mm -hmm. in mind, Books, I want your thoughts on this too. Because we're looking at Michkov and we're saying, okay, that's going to be the guy where wherever he goes, we're going to have the gasp. Right, that moment of the draft. Oh, for sure. We're going to have that. How far down does he get? And is there a line? Who's taking him? Washington. Well, well, yeah. So now, does he get to eight? Yes. Well, 
Uh, Jason's well, not I'm, so sure. Good. I love it. Let's let's. I'm look. not so sure. Here's, here, here, not here. only did he does he disagree with you, but he rolled his eyes at you. Oh, just always. Yeah. I think it's a tick. I think it was a tick because I don't roll my eyes at Sammy unless we're somewhere at 1:30 in the morning on the on the tour. <laughs> so let's start with Montreal. Okay. So for me, from my background, where I come from, you have to be very confident in your contractual situation, the support of your ownership group, the long road ahead, if you will. Okay. So if I'm a general manager and I've got a year plus left on my contract, it's going to take a lot of kahoolies for me to draft Mitchkoff because I'm not likely going to see the player unless our team takes a leap and we have a lot of success. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that factors into the back of their mind, I believe, you know, they're all going to roll out there and say, I want to do what's best for the organization. But we also mm -hmm. know that they, they want to do what's best in the short order to, you know, build momentum for themselves. So I look at Montreal and they're flush with prospects, guys. We know that already, right? Mm -hmm. We also know that they're going to be there a while. Like the management group, the team there, I believe they're going to be there a while. So you can take that risk because you don't have to have that player drop into your system tomorrow. Like they can wait that out three years. I'm kind of curious on Arizona and it's going to muddy the waters, but they have six and 12. Yep. Okay. And they have an absolute boatload of prospects. So they can wait forever on this guy. So from an asset management perspective, if you draft him and he never comes over to you and he's that elite in Europe, you move him later on. You make a great point. And I've said that uh, too publicly before. With pick six and 12, you're still going to get a really good player at 12. Plus, they don't even have a home probably for three years. So but you know it, what, it does, you know it does saying, fit the timeline contractually for sure. And having to deal with... The, the numerous issues that go along. Yeah, I just, I think you manage the asset yeah. that way. Like, I think it, it's a strategy that I would employ. I would at least think about it. Does he get past Washington, though? I don't think so. I don't think so. As a matter of fact, the politics of the game will, will take over there. That kid will be over in Washington playing sooner than later because Ovi will be involved. And, you know, the people in Russia that uh, the Capitals, you know, they have a long history there. We all know that. He'll be over here sooner than later. That contract in Sky, I'm with you. It doesn't matter. It won't matter for the right team. I shouldn't say that. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter for the right team. But the other part of it that, you know, think about Bill Armstrong, and you guys know him as probably better than, than both JB and I do. But you want to talk about a guy who, who walks around the room and is not afraid to, no, to do some things? He fits the profile for that too. In an equal world, if this was just based on talent and there were none of these other things that people had to consider, Jeff says Mishkov goes too. Do you guys agree? If he's over I here, am quoting if he, you accurately. That's fine. Right? No, if you yeah. just look at skill. Yeah. No, if you, if you, you, you best you player available, absolutely. For me, best player available. And I want people to understand too, like when we start hearing about, and I've, uh, um, I think everybody in this room recognizes that I've, I've speak to my people in Russia that I've worked with over the last 20 years or so as well. And like where you come from in the world and the way that your personality makeup is and the type of person you are, it also is a, a byproduct of where you've grown up. Okay. So like when you yep. see a, a moody Russian player and you see that he's got to be broken here or he's, he does this really well. And, you know, we have concerns about his character this the way that a Russian, somebody in Russia views character of their own player compared to the way we look at it in North America, there's a difference. For sure. Okay. Yep. Culture has to enter into it. So then I double down on that and say he's 18 years old. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I like imagine everybody in this room when we were all 18 years old, like, come on. So best player available, uh, Mitch Goff, he's over here playing uh, for the London Knights last year. He's going number two for me. I think three for me. I think Anaheim needs to address this, the center position and size. I mean, you saw what Ryan gets left did for the organization. I think Vantilli can do a lot of those same things. You know, I think their D is pretty much short up. You know, all three CHL leagues defensemen of the year. 
And then Yarmo, I think he's a guy that he'd go down that road. Let me oh, pa- yeah, let I, me I pause on, yeah. on let, let, let me yeah. pause on Columbus at three here because we've already talked about Verbeek and going his own way, doing his own thing. Yarmo has showed this how many different times, right? You remember the Buffalo draft with oh, Pierre Luc Dubois? Mm-hmm. Th- th- this wouldn't be new territory for Kekalainen. It wouldn't be, but he's he's been pretty public, and I don't I don't think you go away from it saying he's going to take a center. So I I think I'm gonna I'm gonna stick. Is Anaheim that. making his pick for him? Interesting, yeah, I think so. I mean, Fantilli and Carlson are, are going to be the next two guys. I, I strongly mm-hmm. believe that. So Anaheim makes the pick. They go Fantilli. They, Columbus goes Carlson. Vice versa. Okay, who's your player drafted late that you're both looking at saying? In five years, we're going to look at a player taken, I'm talking third round or later, that makes an impact. And people are saying, why wasn't this guy taken earlier? I got uh, Kai Uchaz, plays for the Red Deer Rebels. Okay. Former first Are you trying round. to get like Ron McLean brownie points here? Or what's the story? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> the Rebs. A former Seattle Thunderbird got into some off-ice trouble there. It's been pretty public. You can look it up if you want. Got a... Second life, if you will, by being moved over to Red Deer. Uh, I think Steve Conowalchuk would have been familiar with the player. I think their times would have crossed from his Bantam draft year to when Steve was coaching Seattle and then moved to Red Deer. But 6'1", 190-pound center, 50 goals this year. It's hard to turn your back on someone who scores 50 goals, especially in the Western Hockey League. It was, you know, it was a really talented year this year. So he's gone through it a couple of times already. He's older, you know. Now this is somewhat um, dependent on if you feel that he's done the work off ice because you know, you don't want to make that kind of mistake where you're bringing that person into your organization. And all of a sudden that's where the attention goes, mm-hmm. Mitchell Miller mm-hmm. and, and, and have to worry about that. But I, I have a lot of faith in Steve Conowalchuk, his ability to develop players, his ability to get players on the right track. And when I think about Kai Uchaz coming into the league as a top man and pick and a guy who scored 50 goals and a guy who I think has grown up, he's a guy to me that people might be saying, Plus, at 6'1", 190, we've just seen what size can do in the, in, in the playoffs. He's probably a guy that I think five years down the road, people might be saying, how how did he get there? Can I throw out two? Sure. Is this fine? I think this kid's going to be a second-round pick, but I, I depending on how things fall, he might fall to the beginning of the third. Like, Easton Cowan in London really impressed me in the second half of the season. Like, really impressed me. Earn the trust. We've all been around the London Knights long enough to recognize that you have to earn the trust of the the coach there, Dale, obviously. Yeah. He took off in the second half of the season, so it was a slow burn in the first half. More of a tenacious depth guy in their lineup. Come playoff time, the hardest time of year, a coach who values guys that go through the wall at the hardest time of the year, he elevated. He scored the majority of his goals in the back half, went to all the hard areas, played fast, played smart, was involved all the time. Really attractive uh, elements to his game, and I think he's just starting to take off. The other guy I want to talk about, though, is uh, out of Kingston, uh, Quentin Burns. Yes. I love this kid. I love this kid. He's Radko Gudis, but he's not Radko Gudis heavy. Like, this guy mm. is an absolute terror on the back end. Over 100 pims. Hard to play against, uh, capable enough with the puck, but he never goes away. Like, Kalen Lynn might go in the second round out of Red Deer. Yeah. Okay? If some team drafts both these guys on the roster, (laughs) I'm going to tell you, it's a tire fire every time they're out there on the ice for the right reasons. Like, they are relentless. So, 
I really like the way the kid plays. I get a chuckle sometimes, actually, because he's so aggressive. He needs weight. He's not heavy enough right now to play the way he plays. But keep an eye on that name because I think he's got a lot of momentum. Can, I'm gonna can, throw, can I throw one more at you? you sure. sure. And then I want to ask you yeah. about one player who I think might fit that criteria that Elliot's talking about. But go ahead. Long, rangy, big physical defenseman, right? That's the talk of the town. That's what, that's Vegas, what we're yeah, Vegas, Vegas Golden yeah. Knights. Terrell Goldsmith is a former band of first-round pick to Prince Albert. And he skates pretty well, but this guy's a nasty piece of business. 6'4", 223 pounds, D-man. I think he's going to get some love, but he's he's probably going to get like the Luke Shen thing. Where not saying where Luke was drafted fifth overall, but he goes late in the draft and he takes his three to four years to develop and then he shows up and he's probably a guy who's going to be able to extend his career because he can do the good Branson thing. He can do the Luke Shen thing where he'll be able to maintain his ability to keep the pace, play heavy, be relied on to play defensively, block shots. Uh, you know, the one area of the game that he needs work on is his puck skills aren't great. Mm. And so that's an area that, you know, you got to get that short up. You have to be able to get back, retrieve, move a puck quickly. So he'd be another guy at a, at a Prince Albert that I'd be paying attention to that'll go late in the draft. No one will even think about this guy. I think he had maybe 11 points this year mm-hmm. that people are going to look at 10 years down the road and say, oh, wow, did we just get a first-round pick for Terrell Goldsmith? Hmm. I like his name. I love that it name. Is can can I just make a, a scouting statement on what we just talked about right there? And it's it's interesting. Every player that we talk about that has uh, deficiencies moving the puck, you know, guys that, yeah. you know, you're concerned about it. What I look for as a scout, anybody can move a puck on their forehand. Okay, you can. You can go window and outboards and all. Like, it's a natural type thing. But NHL coaches and teams are calculating, and if they see a deficiency and they dump it to your corners of defenseman, which makes you move a puck on your backhand side, and some of these kids, we've we've seen oh, yeah, some, ish. right? You showed it to me. We've seen yeah. some. Hmm. That is something that when I talk about puck skill in the back end, I start to identify that because there's a process there. And if you can't make a little chip play or a stick to stick on your backhand side under duress, because I know you can go window one out on your forehand side, hmm. then I really discount the prospect. You know what though? That's hugely important. So I talked to Luke Shen at the end of the year, and he said Adam Oates saved his career. Yeah, Adam Oates simply saved his career. Listen. At this age, you're not getting any faster. Your skating style is not going to change. What's going to change? Your ability to recognize how it is that you're going to have to move pucks. Yeah, I know you can play defense. I know you can fight, play heavy, do all that stuff. How is it that you're going to move the puck? And what's wrong? Oh, yeah, we need to... What's a great first pass? Is it a five-foot pass to the guy who can move it a little quicker? Is it a you know, a bomb through the middle of the ice where you send someone a breakaway? So Luke really credits Oates for his ability to his stick skills and puck moving skills to extend his career to now the point where he might be at a point where he signs two or three years making more money than he's made in the last two or three years Mm. you know like so I think that's important but I also think that that's an element that can be approved upon All right, a smoky break for our Thoughtline partner, Montana's Barbecue and Bar. With meats prepared and smoked in-house, it's no wonder why they're Canada's home for barbecue. Check them out, and as Elliot always says... Try the ribs. Yes, their ribs are smoked in-house every day until they fall off the bone. And don't forget, Montana's has all-you-can-eat ribs Every Wednesday. Head on down to Montana's Barbecue and Bar and take the all-you-can-eat rib challenge every Wednesday. Smoking good barbecue only at Montana's. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. 
let me pick up on, and again, this is using Elliot Friedman's criteria of someone you're getting a little bit later that you look back and you say, whoa, I can't believe we got this guy. And we'll pick up on the theme of defenseman as well. Bo Akey of the Barry Colts. I had to take a little bit of a step back when Brant Clark came back to junior hockey, but do you put Bo Akey in that category? So Bo Akey is an under-the-radar guy for me um, that you have to watch him very closely to appreciate all the little things that he does exceptionally well, and I mean exceptionally well. So I'll give you an example. I'm in a game in Hamilton, and Pucks, you know, he's a right shot, right? He's a, so he's in the offensive zone, and the Pucks in uh, to the, his left side. And the play kind of moves over, and he cheats to the middle of the ice. But then it goes angle out, so chip to the neutral zone by Hamilton, and they're busting up the ice. And I can't remember the player. Let's just say Lardis, for example, because he was <laughs> it was a burner, whoever yeah. was going. This kid, his ability, Jeff, to jump, pivot, uses agility to angle away space, he's got fantastic feet, like really good feet. So understated value in terms of being able to get from A to B very efficiently, very mm-hmm. quickly. Uh, on the offensive side, uh, he's a distributor more than a shooter. It's kind of muffins from distance for me, for him, okay? But um, I value this kid a lot. He, he was a riser on my draft list at the end of the year, mm-hmm. more for all the little intangibles that I saw. And there's going to be some people that are going to say, well, he's not a great defender. He's not that. All I need him to do in, in his zone is get there quicker than the opponent I don't even need him to bump that much. He can be an area defender, be active with your stick, but jump to it. Jump to it quicker than your opponent and move it somewhere. You know what I mean? Like move it somewhere. That's a good name to keep an eye on. Yeah. Is he a second? Well, he's a a late second. He could go in the second. You know, I think that a lot of teams are going to shy away and think that he can't defend at the NHL level and that his element offensively isn't quite elite enough, okay, to run your first power play unit for sure uh, or whatever. But uh, don't discount it. I think this kid's... You know what? There's good lessons there, though, because when Clark came back, he had to acquiesce. He was taking a lot of Clark's minutes before Clark came back. And oddly enough, Clark was a mentor to him. And some people are going to find that strange based on on, on yep. Brant's history. But a lot of growing up happened with L.A. this year, and I think that was super important. By all accounts, when he comes back to, to Barry, he's he's locked in, he's focused. We know that the, the offensive production is there for Brant. But a guy who I think took the lessons of, of growing up and maturing quickly that he helped pass along hmm. to Bo, and that helped Bo get over the fact that he wasn't going to get all the primetime minutes because Brant was back. So it'll be interesting to see if teams take that as a positive, knowing that Brant's grown up a little bit, or a negative, knowing you know the history of Brant going back a couple of years ago. Okay, what team sets the draft on its ear? Either with a wild pick or a trade or something. Who's the team you're watching to drop the biggest bomb? A couple of teams for me. I think the Winnipeg Jets, we have to keep an eye on them. I just think that uh, not even uh, reading things or anything, I just, my gut tells me that that NHL group is in flux. And what that's going to mean is that they're going to have to start to develop another layer. Like the, the thing with the Winnipeg Jets guys is that they need to draft and develop and they have to hope the kids stay there, right? They're not a high-end destination for free agents. So when you get the hellebucks of the world and some of these guys who are entering, you know, whatever their status is as mm-hmm. free agents in short order, I think that they're going to be aggressive, and that could change the trajectory of their group, not at the NHL level necessarily. I think they want to retool, but the underbelly. I think that there could be some momentum there. The other one I'm going to be interested in, they got a lot of picks, is Nashville. 
Like I think Trotsy coming in, I have a history in Nashville when I was first there and we had a lot of, um, they drafted great. Jeff Kelty and those guys have done a fantastic job there. But I think that if they were to look in the rearview mirror, they would say that we took some safer picks over the years than we, we took good NHL players. I'll go back to the you floor. You always drafted from the West. It was like, okay, best player available from the Western Hockey League. <laughs> well, that was what we used to always say about Nashville. could have been made too that we never, sometimes, sometimes we didn't dress, draft the best player, but it was like, again, yeah. I go back to that floor scenario, you know, like guys that were going to be steady Eddies, right? Yeah. Sissons, uh, he'd be one in that group. Oh, the, yeah. the Dan Ham uses of the world, had yeah. great careers, you know, um, there's a bunch of guys there and then in, in that, they did a nice job. Like Pekka Rene, was obviously a ninth round pick. This is going back. I don't want to bore everybody here, but I mean, it took him forever, two contracts, two deals to get to the NHL. Yeah. yeah. Nashville, keep an eye on them. They got two first. They got, I th- I think they have the most picks in the 13. draft. 13 picks yeah. in the draft. And I know that Trotsky's indicated to that group that, that he wants to take more risk, mm-hmm. get more aggressive. So uh, that'll be interesting. I'm looking at Perot in the first round potentially to uh, Nash Vegas. Uh, where are they, 17 or something like that? Yeah, that's 17, 18, yeah. somewhere. Seems like that's in his range. Yeah. They love going to the program. They love for going players. to the program. Yeah. I think St. Louis is the team. I think Doug Armstrong is just looking at this thing and saying, I hated to do what I had to do the last couple of years. Hang on. You think he's making all three picks? No chance. No chance. He'll be moving and grooving for sure. So he's, I think he's 10, 25, 28, somewhere, something like that. Yeah. So the 10th, I'm quite certain he's going to keep. Mm-hmm. I don't know if adding those other two would bump him up any further if he was really excited about, you know, a player inside that top five or six. But I think they're going to be, they're going to be an interesting team to watch. You know, Montreal, like, they think outside the box. You think about that deal they swung last year to get Kirby Doc. I think they're at a point now where their prospect pool is good. Ownership has a lot of confidence in the program, the, the mm-hmm. you know, the Gorton Hughes program. And they have, I think, a pick that people are going to be really dying to get to mm-hmm. once they see what happens yeah. with the four picks in front of them. So I think there could be some action there with Montreal. And, again, they think outside the box. They're not afraid to take a shot at the title. They know that they've got guys coming, and they have confidence in ownership. The one team that, and I'll talk for you here, Elliot, the one team that we've been talking a lot about as being a team to watch at the draft is Philadelphia. Mm. With Daniel Briere, we all know who's mm-hmm. available. We all know what you know. Briere and Jones want to do here with this thing, and they're looking to, to build up that pipeline. Could they be the ones, in your estimation? I mean, last year was Cutter Goche, we're moving on. What about this year, though? Like, this year is the first year they said, they, where they've really said, we're going for it. We're not afraid to use the R word, rebuild, and this is how we're going to do it. For the first time in my career, they're in that mode. Like, they forever, it's always been Philadelphia's going to challenge to do something, right? Like, they yeah. just had, like, going back to the Snyder days and whatever. And I'm lukewarm on some of the, uh, the noise out there. Like, if I'm part of Philadelphia's brass... I'm not really looking to trade a Konechny. Like, I'm not looking to do some of these things. So they're caught in the muddy middle. It's interesting the guys they're bringing in as advisors, right? So um, I think that it's going to be fascinating to see where they go. I'd be making the pick, uh, not trading the pick, and looking to acquire more picks. I think they will. They desperately need to get some traction uh, coming through the system. So, And, you know, it's going to be fascinating in the next couple of years, too, to see – when the honeymoon stage wears off for Briere and his group, because you know, Philly's Philly. Yep. Yeah. Tough decisions. Like Lawton is a, is a good player. Any team would take Scott Lawton right now mm-hmm. at, at the price he's at, the deal he's on. 
So I think he's going to be a coveted guy, you know, and probably this year more so than ever when you expect the cap to go up next year and teams are looking to fit those Barbashev type of guys into your into your lineup. And Konechny is a really interesting guy too. I think he has an opportunity to really flourish under Tortorella. I think there were some really hard lessons learned last year, but he, I think he's a guy you want to be careful about moving too because mm. maybe given a, a new situation, a fresh situation, maybe he's a, the type of guy that ends up going off for some teams. I would say Carter Hart's the guy though. Like it's it's going to be what they do in net, right? It's it's. Yeah. And I know there's there's a lot of moving yeah. parts there. There's a yeah. lot of stuff going on, but whatever they decide to do uh, with that situation is going to be interesting because that that will bring back some draft oh, capital man. for them. All three of those guys, yeah. I think, bring back bring back a lot of. But then the waiting game starts. So um, the one thing I would say too is that uh, in the first round, guys, there's a lot of European players, and there's um, some college players, but there's or guys going to college even. Mm -hmm. So the timeline for arrival is different, right? So Mm -hmm. you're drafting the Swede, and you're looking at like get four years, four years. You're drafting a college College guy. guy. You know, there's a little bit of risk reward in there. You know, timeline's different than a than a CHL player, as we all know. So. You have to factor that in. Like, yeah, you want to get the best player, but we also don't want to be terrible for too long. And then the last thing I'll say with that is that next year's draft looks really good too. So it's funny because if he walks in there and says, yeah, I like a lot of our pieces. Look what just happened with Florida. They snuck in in the last couple mm-hmm. of days. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can be that team in the East this the, year. The, 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 re- the reason why, and, and again, like Elliot and I have talked about this plenty, the reason why I'm really, I mean, as confident as you can be before the first round of the draft where anything can really happen about the Philadelphia Flyers really trying to add as many picks as possible. Before he was named interim general manager, I mean, Daniel Briere was scouting. He was on the, like the, the, you saw saw him plenty, right? Like he would, the day before he was named, he was in Barrie. He's spent a lot of time all season on the road, looking at a lot of guys. This isn't a situation where the GM shows up and has maybe seen the kids once or twice. This is someone that's seen a lot of these kids for a couple of years too, like even going back to last season. That's really important. That's like, uh, trust me, that's really important because I've been in rooms where the GM has uh, come in later on or where there's been things in flux and it's really dangerous when they think they know, but they don't know the entire landscape. It's a dangerous proposition to be in. So uh, he's been everywhere. Yeah. Let me ask you about an NHL player, but I want to ask what you thought of him in his draft year. So the Vegas Golden Knights win the Stanley Cup. There's one drafted and developed player on that team, and it's Nick Haig. The defenseman played with James Richmond um, with the Steelheads. What did you think of him then? He was a second-round pick of Vegas. What did you think of him then, and did you think that he would get to this place right now as a Stanley Cup champion? I did. I, I, if I go back, I might have had him in my first round. Um, you know, Mississauga is pretty close for me to get to go see games. And yeah. one thing that really struck, I brought my son one, one afternoon and he was engaged. Hey, do you want to stick? Here's a, here's a puck. You want pictures, whatever you need. Like, I thought that was really cool that, that he kind of took that, got to know his dad a little bit, saw him in, in, in Jersey earlier this year and listened to Jeff Krasakos, the assistant coach there to James Richmond. And both of those guys were like, oh yeah, this guy's, he's going to be a Mm-hmm. He's going to be a really, really good NHL player. So the size right away is going to click. You know he's going to play somewhere at some point. But the identification for him having the Hager bomb, you know, his big shot from the point, yeah. that hasn't the left Hager him at all. Bomb. And, uh, you know, like the uh, 
the idea that he was going to be able to defend with some nastiness, uh, stick up for teammates. There was a lot of things about Nick Haig that I liked, and honestly, I'd have to go back. I might have had him in, the, in my first-round mm. mock, um, so not completely surprised. But a lot of it for me is based on person. I, I say this to JB all the time. Like, I love when we get out to watch games together because, hey, do you see that guy in the back and you see what happened? And I'm sitting there. I'm like, no, what, what do you mean? Oh, yeah, he just turned to the middle and then he flipped this puck over and well, he recognized the line chain. I'm like, whoa, how, do, how the hell do you process all that? And I'm like, no, but I saw him before the game and he, you know, he came over and he said hello and, or he was locked in and dialed in. So we have that, that kind of the yin and the yang thing going on. Um, when it comes to, to to evaluating, but for me, good cop, I, I bad lead, cop. He's the good cop yeah, by far. I, I lean heavily <laughs> on 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 person and personality because that to me says I'm going to work hard to get better. I'm going to be a good teammate, and I'm going to accept whatever role is given to me and try and improve upon that role. And I I saw all those things with Nick. It's funny, you know, Brian Burke uh, told us this a, a number of different times when he's uh, going into the draft. He says the first thing I do is I identify with my eyes. And then I check with the analytics to make sure my eyes aren't lying to me. And then I meet the family. Though, mm-hmm. so, And he's equal value on all of them, to your point, Sammy. So I got to give you a Nick Hegg, uh, yeah. just so we're, we're on the same page here. The beautiful thing about what they do in Mississauga with James Richmond is that he is one of the, um, I don't want to say he's an outside-the-box thinker, but he appreciates input from the NHL community with the prospects that have already been drafted. We had Intel on Hag because we had drafted Tippett out of there. Right. And uh, so, so this Brian, is with Florida, so our listeners know this. With the Florida, Panthers. With Florida Panthers. Yeah, okay. So Cabe or Brian McCabe was our director of player personnel, but he would obviously make the tour and he would go on the ice with the, uh, with Mississauga, with the Steelheads and practice with them and, you know, run drills with them and stuff like that. So it was Easy for me to ask an ex Toronto Maple Leaf defenseman what he thought of Hag because uh, he saw him live and he could see his practice habits and all these mm. things. So I always liked Hag. Was the intel good coming back? It's great. Yeah. It's great because he's a he's a handler. Like you know, like there's guys that came through the league at that time, the Logan Stanleys and that that were big bodies. Yeah. Nick Hag always had the puck on his stick. He's making plays. Yeah. He can rush the puck. He can make little. Play- he's long, right? But he can make plays in the offensive blue line. And I'm not the least bit surprised. He's a He's got a little bit of nasty. He's got a little bit. Of, he's got offense. He's got it all. That guy, that kid is going to make a lot of money. Have a long career. Oh yeah. Last one for me, and this is for you, Jason. Biggest fight you ever saw at a draft table, whether your team or someone else's. This is going way back. This was uh, a war in Nashville, uh, the Columbus draft. Gord Donnelly. I don't know if you remember oh, Gordy. Well, okay. I bet you he won a lot of those arguments. <laughs> got a lot oh, of penalty minutes. Let's, let's just say he was. Uh, the table above his kneecaps was shaking. It was reverberating. Like he was, uh, he was, it was intense. But uh, for whatever reason, uh, Paul Fenton and Jeff Kelty absolutely had a disdain for PK Subin at the time. And we're at our May meetings in Nashville, and they had him in the sixth round. And we're like, you know, this can't be. And, and Gordy and I are going at him a little bit. And Jeff was not happy with us. Definitely not happy with us. But we didn't let one give it up. So we get to Columbus and. We got, I think we got into the fourth round by the end of the May meeting. And by the time we were in Columbus, we might have marginally got him up to like the late third or the fourth. And then we just, we tapped out. We had, we had like, it was like, we did everything. It was like razor blades on a chalkboard. Like we tried everything, but they just, they weren't buying in. And, huh. and then of course. They traded for him years they later. They traded for him years later. <laughs> Which was much more costly. Much more costly. <laughs> much more costly. I got to give you another one real quick though. Yeah. Jake Muzzin. We brought Jake Muzzin to camp in Nashville oh, yeah, back in I the day as a free agent, yeah. uh, Joe Resnick client. 
and um, he was coming off uh, back surgery when we had yep. him. I was in the Sioux originally with Jake, so there's a history there. We brought him to camp as a free agent. Pittsburgh didn't sign him, right? And we went on the road to Atlanta for some exhibition games, and we had our staff meeting after, and I said, we got to sign this guy. you know. And I was, I was an entry-level guy. I was still a puppy, right? But I was pretty aggressive about it, and uh, they came up with every reason not to sign him, including this back injury. And hmm. um, Jake would have signed. Like, he wanted to sign. He had a heck of a training camp, and then— you know, the rest is history. What a, what a great career he's had. I love those stories, uh, especially the ones that work out. All right, last one to you then, Sam. Going to give you a chance to shine your own apple here a little oh. bit. Who was, in your history of making mock drafts, who was the one that you really stuck your neck out on and with and were right? Connor McDavid. <laughs> <laughs> you got it again. <laughs> Pierre-Luc Dubois. I had him going third, and and you know I, oh, that's I I'm right. not on social media, that's but right. sometimes the comments after the mock draft, I think yeah. Sportsnet allows some of that stuff to happen. So I looked through. Sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> I looked through some of that, which I, I honestly I never ever ever look at that stuff. Yeah. But for that reason, I thought, well, this is a little polarizing. Let me just see what happens here. John Shannon, working with John Shannon, we're in the combine and we're in the interview room. The you know we get access to the players to do our interviews and. Yarmo, for whatever reason, he came into the room to do an interview too. And now we're off camera, off mic, and and John has a bit of a history with him. And we're talking, and and I'm I'm not saying anything. I never met the guy before other than to shake his hand. So I'm just listening. I'm observing. And I just got the sense that Line A wasn't going to be his his cup of tea. And I thought, all right, well, I've, I know Dubois really well. Like, I did a lot of games in Cape Breton and watched them and followed him. And I knew he could fight. He could play the wing. He could play center. He could shoot. Like, he could do a lot yeah. of things. And I thought all those things were translatable. So, you know, he was still going to go in the top 10. But putting him at three in the mock draft is probably the one that I remember the most. That was a home run pick. I know that was a that was a big peacock He's moment for you to get paid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and line and line A's in Columbus now. Yeah. Yeah. How go figure, right? <laughs> yeah. I'd like about 10% on his next deal. <laughs> Guys, it's been great. I uh, very much look forward to uh, the draft in Nashville and seeing you both there as part of our Working conference. together again. Right? The, one, the one time of year. The, the band is back together in nice. Nashville. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. Sammy Books, you guys are the goods. Uh, thanks so much for that. Really enjoyed it. Looking forward to Nashville. Speaking of Nashville, uh, Nashville is home to a lot of great music. And this week, we'll feature some artists from Music City. Ted Hartog, also known as Mickey Ficky, started as an alt-pop project in 2017 in this ranch-style house in West Nashville. A mix of jazz and funk instrumentals combining with lyric-heavy verses creates a sonic landscape that's easy to get down to. With Chaos, here's Mickey Ficky on 32 Thoughts the Podcast. Maybe I'm wrong.